Well, I feel a little foolish, but that is all right because Paul speaks of the foolishness of Christ, and I will begin again for you and for me. Now, may the foolishness of the cross, which is good foolishness, be your wisdom this day. And it is your wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. And may you know nothing except Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins. For this news of Christ has more authority to give new life than any other news, than any science, than any other accomplishment or title that you may have. And well, you might say to yourself, well, pastor, that sounds a little salty, a little crazy, for we do have science on our side most of the time, or history on our side, or economics on our side uh, some years, uh, or influence on our side. Well, it is salty, this news. It is salty in the very best way, for the foolishness of the cross has now become your wisdom. Even more, it has become your salvation. For your sins are forgiven. And that is it. And someday I may learn to leave my sermon right at that moment. But not today. For I share with you a little more. And I can say to you now that you have this foolishness, this salt, the grace and peace of God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ is truly yours. Amen. Well, my wife Erin and I have been working hard to sell our house in Rochester. And so for the last month, she and the kids have continued living their lives and schooling there in Rochester. And I've been here working in Sioux Falls. You may be re reading between the lines now and thinking that perhaps Erin has been working much harder at this, at selling the house than I have. And you may be right about this taking care of the kids, cleaning, getting ready for 20 to 30 showings. Well, it's not been easy for her or for me, and we look forward to the time when we can all be living together here in Sioux Falls, and we pray that this is soon. But I do get back to Rochester, to Aaron and the kids uh, every week, to remind them of what their husband and dad looks like anyway, uh, driving there after worship on Sunday and back to Sioux Falls on Monday evening. Though being apart during the week has been hard, it is a great reunion every Sunday evening as I arrive at our old house. But much of my work when I'm home is trying to continue to spruce up the house so it looks as good as it can for potential buyers. Now, I kind of like this work. I like maintaining things, working on things, figuring them out, fixing things. But I have to say that sprucing up and showing our house has been a bit of a humbling experience for us because we love this old house. Our older kids have grown up there. Our younger kids have all come home from the hospital to that house. We believe that it has been the perfect house for us over the last 10 years with just enough space for six kids and a dog, but not too large. However, showing a house in the modern day, well, it's been a little bumpy. Because if you show your house today with realtors anyhow, there is often instant feedback from potential buyers. And so in an online form, on our phones, we get this form. We see on a scale from one to five what potential buyers like about the house and what they don't like about the house. And we've come to hear that not everyone 
who has looked at our house, likes it as well as we like it. And this can hurt a little bit, though it provides a little motivation to put a little more touch-up paint here or fix the squeaks or try to make the place shine as well as it can. And even when we may have liked some of those idiosyncrasies, they must be fixed. Our youngest, Solve, reported her sorrow this last week when she noticed that I had painted over some of the scratches in her door. She said to her mom, I love those scratches, and they're not there anymore. <laughs> but we need home improvement. So it goes for all of us, I suppose, whether you're selling a house or not, when we try to live up to the expectations of the law even and maybe especially God's law for us. We want to improve. We want to be as good as we can be. But perhaps what Aaron and I have felt about our house is how Israel has felt after Isaiah was done preaching to them in chapter 58. The law says fast at the appropriate times. Seek the Lord. Loose the bonds of injustice. Undo the yoke. Share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your house. This is what God requires in his law. And Israel says, look at us. How well we fasted and loosed the bonds of injustice and shared our bread. But it is not enough, Isaiah says. It is not enough, God's word says to Israel. And perhaps that is like hearing someone say of the house you love that it, well, it's a little shabby for our taste. And then you go touch it up a little with some paint and repair work only to hear the complaint again. This was Israel. Yet with God, it is not a matter of whether someone likes your house or not, which isn't that big a deal, I suppose, but it is a matter of life and death. And so we are tempted to keep trying to touch things up to make them a little better, a little more paint here to self-improve, but it doesn't work. Now I should say that we as pastors are tempted often to motivate our congregations to better and better works as well. Whether, it, whether they be for the needs of the neighborhood of Sioux Falls or for the world in which we live. And I have to say that God will use those attempts for others. God does use them for the sake of your neighbor. And they are commanded of you. But like Israel, we hear in God's word that they are not enough for peace. They do not bring salvation, and they will not bring in the kingdom of Christ. No, that kingdom comes in quite a different way. That yoke of injustice cannot finally be removed by our works, but only by the one who makes you righteous, apart from your best parts and apart from your worst parts. That will only come by the one who takes away your sins. And so we are brought to our gospel this day when we hear Jesus teaching. It's the second part of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And he says, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And we are tempted to believe that this is so because of our love and our welcome, because of what we have done for the sake of others. But this is not so. You are indeed salt and light. This is true. You are salt and light because you have been made so by the Holy Spirit through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, and through the preached word. You have been made into salt and light. 
And now you are made into preachers of this very word of forgiveness. And here is your saltiness, and here is your light. Now it's true that your conscience will always fall back into that game of comparisons. How well did I do today? What standing do I have today? What have I accomplished? What can I trust today? And I have to say that in the midst of that game, you are also tempted to either lower the bar of the law so it's a little easier to get over or pad your results. Believe me, I know what this looks like. Having had kids estimate their piano practicing at the end of the week before each lesson, maybe there was an extra five minutes here or five or ten minutes there. I know what this looks like because I also was one of those kids years ago reporting my practice time before my teacher. But Jesus says this. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now I know that when I padded my results for piano, it did not make me a better piano player but actually made my uh, discrepancies worse, for my piano teacher typically knew how much I had practiced or not. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. While humans continue to try to change God's law, and we do this to suit our own desires or our own scorecard, Jesus is clear that this casuistry will not bring righteousness, but only more sin. And unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or Pharisees, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven will not be open for you. Now that is a dour word. <laughs> that does not sound like good news at all. Jesus' words here do not leave any room for you or for me or for our works. For the law finally accuses us until all has been given, including life itself. And all will be given. But what do we have to hope in? Well, thanks be to God that Christ has come with a word beyond the law, a word of hope and a word of salt and light. The word is that he comes not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it and for your sake. That is, Jesus fulfills the law. He fills it up for you. He accomplishes it for you. He takes on your sins and gives you his righteousness so that sin and death and the devil will not have the last word. And in Christ, they do not have the last word. In Christ now, your sins, your works, and your death are defeated. And so is the devil defeated, who is still running around this place, trying to get you to believe that all you should be trusting are your works and your love and your stuff or your possessions instead of Christ. But it is not so. And that news is light that cannot be hid once you hear it as you have heard it now. It is not like a flashlight that you can point or turn on and off. But it is more like a lampstand, Jesus says, a lamp on a lampstand that gives light to the whole world, that goes out all over the place. This is what it is like when you have Christ in your conscience instead of the law. And so you let this gospel go. 
Jesus says, let your light so shine. Not that you can help it when you have it. Let it go, or as some have said, let the bird fly, or let the gospel loose. And when you have this light, this word on your lips, then you are truly salty, melting the ice and the snow of the law's accusation and judgment, being used as grit in this old world, which so badly wants to make justice and peace in its own image. But God will not have it any other way than the way, the truth, and the light there is no justice and peace outside of Christ and his forgiveness, and he brings that for you now. Now, I know in the scope of our old world that this actually sounds a little crazy. Paul knew this, too, when he was addressing the Corinthian church and the mess they had made of things, trying to follow their own wisdom. So he writes, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so now through the Holy Spirit, you know nothing. You know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so you have the mind of Christ, which is everything. Amen.